Good evening, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Terror Radio Podcast. If you are new, then welcome. This is a podcast dedicated in bringing you the best of horror and thriller old-time radio broadcasts, as well as original stories. This is your host, Keith, a.k.a. The Radio Show Nerd, and I wanted to let you all know, if you have any suggestions or comments, or maybe there's a particular show you want to hear, drop me a line at radioshownerd at gmail.com. Again, that's radioshownerd at gmail.com. But please be respectful. So, without further ado, this is Terror Radio. The two series I'm featuring today are Once Upon a Midnight, which was later retitled The Alfred Hitchcock Show. I'm sure you people have heard of him before. <laughs> and the crime series Nightbeat. Now, Once Upon a Midnight, i.e. The Alfred Hitchcock Show, was a short-lived You know what? I can't even really describe it as short-lived. Let's say it was a proposed radio show by ABC, which was supposed to be hosted as well as narrated by the great Alfred Hitchcock. But unfortunately, it wasn't able to find a sponsor. So only one episode aired, and that was the pilot episode, which I have for you tonight. This is an adaptation of the 1931 novel, Malice or or Forethought. Yes, Malice or Forethought. And it was first broadcasted on May 11th, 1945. So you know the drill. Sit back, turn down the lights, and listen to Malice or Forethought. Upon a Midnight, a presentation of the American Broadcasting Company dedicated to the hearty listener who favors a tale spiced with mystery and imagination. What time is it in your house? Eight? Nine? Ten? Set the clock ahead. Make it twelve. Midnight's the time for these stories. And now here's your host, the noted director and producer, an expert guide along the path of dark adventure, Mr. Alfred Hitchcock. It was not until several weeks after he had decided to murder his wife that Dr. Bickley took any active steps in the matter. Murder is a serious business. The tiniest slip may be disastrous. And Dr. Bickley had no intention of risking disaster. This was to be the most delicately perfect of all perfect crimes. Suspense, shock, murder, all the makings of a spine-tingling mystery drama in the hands of a past master of theatrical illusion, Alfred Hitchcock. 
We of the American Broadcasting Company believe this new series has the opportunity of becoming the most important and distinguished of its kind in radio. Mr. Hitchcock will appear in every program as the narrator and will personally supervise the writing and direction of each highly dramatic tale. It is our good fortune that Alfred Hitchcock has an enormous interest in radio. In fact, the idea of this series originated with him. This is important because it means we have the great asset of a star with a personal enthusiasm in making the series a true milestone in radio. The musical score is handled by Felix Mills in a new and effective way. Instead of using music simply as a bridge between scenes, each episode will be especially scored for dramatic value. The music used to make plot points, to add impact to the action and sharpness to the dialogue. We feel that in every way, this new radio series offers an unusual opportunity to combine broad popular appeal with truly distinguished radio treatment. We leave it to you to judge. You were saying, Mr. Hitchcock, that uh, murder is a serious business. Oh, yes, and murderers are serious people. You know, one thing that has always fascinated me about criminals is that when you walk down a street, any passerby might be a murderer. They don't all wear black mustaches. I imagine most murderers behave just like mild, ordinary people until suddenly one day they turn and stab you in the back or drop a lump of cyanide in a friend's tea. I think this idea must have intrigued Francis Isles too, for the murderer in his story, Malice Aforethought, the Dr. Brickley I mentioned, was certainly an ordinary person. A little fellow, lightly built, around 38 I imagine, Sandy hair, a bit thin on top, small sandy moustache. You've seen him. On top of a bus, perhaps. Or you've met him on a train. Or if you've lived near Wyvern Cross in England a few years back, you might have met him in the village, starting out on the morning rounds of his patients. Good morning, Dr. Bigley. Good morning, Mrs. Templer. Morning, Doctor. Morning, Miss Dean. Lovely morning. Lovely. Oh, Bigley. Mr. Tor, good morning. Oh, morning. Good morning, Dr. Bigley. Good morning. How's your mother? Ah, splendid. Morning, Doctor. Good morning. Morning, Mrs. Cheevy. Mrs. Harvard. Lovely morning. Lovely. Listen to the way he says, lovely morning. I must say I do enjoy a cheerful murderer, although when he got home, Dr. Bickley wasn't always quite as cheery. I suppose his wife, Julia, was what you would call a battle axe. Anyway, she was a lot older than Bickley, almost an old maid type, I suppose. Probably would have been if Bickley hadn't married her. Really, Edmund, really. You might have been considerate enough to come home a little earlier, today of all days. How can Florence get on with her work if you keep her waiting to wash up your lunch things like this? Sorry, Julia. Have to get through my patience, you know. Well, of course. Do you want some more of that cold joint? Uh, just a glass of beer, I think. Edmund, you have far too much to do to sit here drinking beer. Have you forgotten we're having guests? No, my sweet. Besides, you know how beer makes you perspire. Oh, the Tors will play tennis, of course. You better put the net up first. You know how it sags during the first half hour. Mm -hmm. Then there are the two tables to be taken out and the chairs. And I think you better put the awning up in this sun. And after that, you'll have to... My dear, I, uh... <laughs> I don't think I should be able to get all those things done. My dear Edmund, they've got to be done. Have you finished? I'm waiting. Uh, a bit of cheese, I think. There's no time for cheese. Oh. Then I suppose I'm finished. Just as well we don't give tennis parties every day, isn't it? <laughs> oh, I'm glad you mentioned it. The court will have to be rolled. What? The tennis court, Edmund. Wet it down and roll it. But then I'll have to remark all the lines. Well, of course, Edmund. But, but I don't... Now, Edmund, don't stand there. Get about it. Dear me, it's a pity I can't be in a dozen places at once to see to everything myself. Yes, dear. 
that was a typical day at the Bickleys. Except on this particular day, the weather and tempers were hotter than usual. Day, Miss Nick. Edmund, Mr. Tor has nothing to eat. Oh, here we are. Sandwich, Mr. Tor? Oh, I believe I will. Oh. And how is old Mrs. Parrott these days, Doctor? Yes, she's been ailing, eh? Well, Mrs. Parrott, I might say. Edmund, Miss Rattery will have a sandwich. Oh, of course. Miss Rattery. Thank you, Doctor. You were asking about Mrs. Parrott. Oh, yes. Uh, as a physician, it's my opinion. Edmund, she... not there, please. Hmm? Don't sit there. That's Winfred's seat. She'll be back in a moment. Oh. Dave said that. Edmund, they're a ball short. Ben just hit one into the gooseberry bushes. Oh, did he? Well, go and look for it, Edmund. Don't get your guests. It's all right. I'll get it, Mrs. Bickley. No, Benji. Let Edmund. Oh, hurry, dear. Yes, dear. And so, gooseberry bush looking for a tennis ball. Just as he was about to grab it with a hot and clammy hand, he heard himself a subject of conversation. Did you hear the way she orders him about? Awful, isn't it? I'm hanged if I'd speak to a dog like that. Ah, uh, but then I imagine a fellow like Bickley rather enjoys it, eh? Oh, Benji. <laughs> well, you know as well as I do, he didn't enjoy it, especially when people laughed. All he could do was to clench his teeth and stare down into the bush. I can't stand this. Not much longer. I can't stand it. I wish Julia were dead. I wish... I could kill her. By the way, I'd like to stop a moment and tell you about a secret little weakness Bickley had. Every night he would soothe himself to sleep with what he called his visions. Little extravagant pieces of imagination in which Bickley was always a person of supreme importance. Sometimes it was Bickley the great painter or Bickley the great composer. Regardless of the role, he was always great, always a hero. He'd pull up his knees under the blanket, snuggle his head deeper into the pillow, and then say to himself, Well, what shall we do tonight? I think I'll play for England. I think I'll beat Australia. Bickley, the great cricket player, was his favorite vision. At bat for more than ten hours. Amazing. Australia trying every bowler they had. No use. The man's too good. The match went on and on until Bickley had broken the world's record by scoring 501 runs. Stupendous. At the finish, he was carried from the field on the shoulders of his fellow players, the idol of the cheering thousands, the man of the hour, but always smiling and modest, when the Prime Minister said solemnly, Bickley, you have saved England. Well, naturally, by this time, Bickley was fast asleep. But those wild thoughts he had when his head was in the gooseberry bush formed the basis of a new vision. He saw himself, the respected physician of Wyvern Cross, dignified, light-hearted, strolling happily down the highway of life without a care in the world, without worry, without Julia. But how could I manage it? How could I kill her? How? Without risk. How could I kill her? How? How? How could I kill her? For nights and nights, he did not play cricket once. Then an extraordinary thing happened. A thing that got poor old Bickley mixed up more than ever. He fell in love. 
She was a newcomer to Wyvern Cross, a Miss Madeline Cranmere, who'd taken up residence at the old hall, a huge castle-like affair on the hill. She was a girl of about 23, not pretty in the least, except for her blue eyes, which were quite beautiful. Bickley had never met her. Until the afternoon, he was summoned to the hall professionally and very hastily. Dr. Bickley, I'm Madeline Cranmere. So sorry to keep you waiting. Not at all, Miss Cranmere. I spent a very enjoyable few minutes looking over the hall. I've never been up here before. It's beautiful, isn't ah, it? Ah, lovely. Perfect example of old Tudor. Oh, yes. I wouldn't know. Oh, absolutely. That carved over mantel, for instance, quite authentic. And, uh, fortunately, not spoiled by restoration. How interesting. You seem to know a lot about that sort of thing. Oh, no. Before you leave, I must show you the whole place. That's very kind. Not really. Actually, it'll be you who'll be showing me. <laughs> Will you have tea, Doctor? Tea? Well, uh... Please do. Uh, Vera? Yes, Dr. Bickley will stay for tea. Dr. Bickley stayed quite late for tea. They talked of a hundred things. Art, mostly. It came out quite naturally that Dr. Bickley sketched a bit, or tried to. And Miss Cranmere was positive he must do wonderful work. From art, they passed to other topics, and it was amazing how identical were their views. There wasn't a lull in the conversation until almost six o'clock. Well, I suppose I should be running. Yes. I've had a most enjoyable afternoon. Shall I confess something, Doctor? I haven't spoken to anyone like this in... in weeks. You see, I live here by myself. Except for the servants, of course. Already I'm finding life a little lonely. Oh. But you're coming back to sketch the hall. You promised. It's a privilege, Miss Cranmere. Well, uh... Well? Oh, uh, Miss Cranmere, you called this afternoon. I mean, the message you left at the house. Oh, oh, yes. I don't sleep well, Doctor. Hmm. Any particular reason you can think of? No. Just nerves, I think. You know. Of course. <laughs> High strung. I suppose I am. Well, we shall certainly have to take care of that. I'll write a prescription at once. Thank you, Doctor. Dr. Bickley came away from the hall that evening and other evenings, too, feeling ten years younger. These nights, as Bickley snuggled into his pillow to begin the happy journey into imagination, he had a new vision to lull him to sleep. Not merely life without Julia, but life with Madeline Cranmere. Madeline Cranmere always at his side. Madeline Cranmere smiling beautifully, Always helpful and understanding. Madeline Cranmere, his life companion, his soulmate. Madeline the fair. Madeline the lovable. Madeline the lily maid. That girl, Madeline Cranmere, is getting herself talked about. Uh, uh, what's that, Julia? You must have heard me, Edmund. You weren't asleep. You were sighing. Are you in pain? Uh, no, no, no. I uh, suppose I've been thinking. I said that Madeline Cranmere is getting herself talked about. Really? Well, people around here will talk about anyone. I don't mind them talking about her. But I don't like to see the Bourne family name dragged in the mud. Bourne? Denny Bourne. He's been seen up there several times lately. You mean they're... They're talking about her and Denny Bourne? Don't shout at me, Edmund. What's the matter with you? Well, 
Well, I think it's abominable. Just because a young man has tea once or twice with a young lady, I... Lord, beats me how these things get about. But they do get about, Edmund. And other things, too. Huh? Uh, so it seems. Is Miss Cranmere in good health, Edmund? Why, I imagine so. Then why do you have to see her every other day? Now, look here, Julia. If you're insinuating Keep that I... Keep your voice down. I have a violent headache. You needn't bother to pretend with me, Edmund. I know you too well. Normally, I don't interfere with your amusements. But in this case, I warn you, I will not permit it. Julia, I won't stand this sort of thing, even from you. If you don't know the first thing about Miss Cranmere. If you think for one moment that Edmund, she's... Edmund, do you imagine yourself in love with this girl? No, I... No, I do not. I think your beastly insinuations Thank are... you, I have no wish to hear. Now, will you kindly give me something for this headache? It's horrible. Julia... And in future, I... will you please stay away from the hall? This was awkward. Bickley had to go up to the hall that next afternoon. Otherwise, he couldn't finish that portrait he was making of Madeline. He certainly found himself between the devil and her deep blue eyes. Is it finished yet? In a moment. Uh, just turn toward the light again, Miss Cranmere. Ah, that's it. Now, if I could just... Oh, Lord. What is it? It's no good. I can't get at you. Not the real you. I'll throw it in the fire. No, please. May I see it? If you want to. But it's not good, really. Hmm. Clever. Do you really think so? I say that. It's wonderful to hear you say that. Very clever. Oh, I say. I don't see what you mean by not being able to get me. I think it's exactly like me. Oh, yes, it's like you, but that isn't the point. I was trying to get at you. I mean, show where you differ from everyone else. I mean, your expression, the way you hold your head, that that lovely, deep look in your eyes, your wonderful, wonderful... I think I understand. Madeline, I suppose you know what I'm doing? Yes, I know. I'm making love to you. Yes. Madeline. Oh, Edmund. Edmund, please go. Go at once. Not now. Oh, please. Don't you see how wrong it is? How stupidly, inalterably wrong. You have a wife, Edmund. Yes. Yes, I have a wife. That night in bed, Bickley had the most important of all his visions... He began to see very clearly how Julia would die. Murder is a serious business. A tiny slip may be disastrous. It was Julia herself who put the final plan into his mind. For the past five years, Julia had been subject to headaches which the doctor sometimes treated with a mild injection of morphine. The first part of his plan was almost childlike in simplicity. He would give Julia her headaches with the aid of a drug he had read about in a medical journal. Corrective for uric acid diathesis. 
drug is no longer used, not only because of its prohibitive price, but because it tends to produce violent headaches. Next morning and every other morning at breakfast thereafter, Julia received a generous dose of this drug sprinkled lightly over her grapefruit. It was certainly a bit of luck that Julia had a passion for grapefruit. Oh, dear, 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 dear. Well, I'll have to get along. Lots of cases this morning. Goodbye, Julia. Oh, dear. What's the matter? Headache. Oh, bad? Blinding. The worst ever. Oh. Well, perhaps you'd better lie down for a while. I'll look in on you at lunch. I can't lie down. It'll only be worse. You'd better give me something before you go, Edmund. Give you what, my dear? Whatever it is you always give me. I can't stand this. Julia... I've thought for a long time that these headaches of yours were just the result of being, well, run down. Now it looks to me like something organic. Well, what? That I can't say. But if they go on, I shall have to take you to see a specialist. You'll do nothing of the kind, Edmund. The headaches went on and the treatment went on. Headaches, morphine, headaches, morphine. By the middle of January, Julia was getting a good five grains a day. So far, so good. Oh, Dr. Bitchley. Come in, Doctor. Is Miss Cranmer at home, Vera? Yes, sir. She's in the drawing room with Mr. Bourne. Bourne. Dr. Bickley. Good afternoon. Miss Cranmere. Well, how are you, Bickley? How do you do? Danny's just leaving. You won't stay for tea, Danny? I'm sorry, I can't. Well, Miss Cranmere's been showing me your sketches, Bickley. They're not bad. Thanks. You must like the old place up here. Very interesting. Architecturally. Only trouble with these old places is that they're not very sanitary. How's that? Plumbing's very bad. Oh, Dr. Bickley, really? Well, it is. Regular typhoid trap up here. Doctor! Well, thank you, Miss Cranley. I've had a marvelous afternoon. Come again soon, Danny. Right. Dr. Bickley? Afternoon. Edmund, that wasn't very clever of you. Wasn't it? What's he doing up here? I don't like him. Come and sit down, Edmund. You haven't answered me, Madeline. This is the tenth time I've run into him in the last month. Edmund, are you so blind? Blind to what? All I see is that you've constantly encouraged Danny Bourne to make this place a sort of... Of course I've encouraged him. Because of you, Edmund, don't you see? I have to let him come. I don't mind people talking about him and me. Let them say what they want. But I couldn't stand it if... If they talked about us, Edmund. Madeline, forgive me. <laughs> darling, don't ever be cross with me, please, darling. Madeline... I don't think you realize how difficult it is, Edmund. A girl like me in love with a married man. I know. It's difficult for me, too. I've tried to think it out clearly. I even spoke to Julia. When? Oh, a long time ago. You told her about us? No, no, certainly not. I should hope you wouldn't. What did you say to her? I asked her for a divorce. She wouldn't give it to you? She refused, absolutely. You see, Edmund... You see how hopeless it is. No. No, it isn't hopeless. Give me time, that's all. Time? I seem to have a great deal of time, don't I? Madeline, look at me. You love me, don't you? 
You know I do, Edmund. How much do you love me? Edmund, what a strange question. How can you ask? Because I've got to know. I've got to know, Madeline. I love you more than I could ever tell. Thank you, Madeline. Well, that satisfied Bickley, but he realized now he'd better get a move on. My dear, I can't do it. I just can't. I merely asked for relief, Edmund. But I gave you a grain, my dear, just before dinner. I know. Now my head's worse than ever. But it can't go on, Julia. What can't? All this morphia. Very bad for you, you know. You... Well, you're coming to rely on us. Will you kindly put what you mean into plain words, Edmund? Well, to put it bluntly, it'll become a habit. If you're hinting that I'll become a drug fiend... Really, Edmund, what nonsense. Kindly come to the surgery and give me an injection at once. No. If you want any more injections, you... You'll have to change your doctor. I can't administer any more. For your own sake, Julia. Well, that night, Julia slept very soundly. Bickley crept slowly down the stairs to the surgery. Quietly, he opened the drawer which contained the morphia serene. Hmm. It had recently been used. Julia was following the course prescribed. She was now addicted to morphine, self-administered. Part one of the plan was complete. Now for part two. He sent a letter to Julia's brother and sister in a nearby town. Just what is this all about, Edmund? Is Julia ill? I'm afraid it's more serious than that, Hilda. Well, let's hear the worst and get it over with. What's the matter with Julia? Well, not easy for me to tell you this. But I felt as her brother and sister, you had a right to know. Julia's... She's addicted to morphine. Morphine? You mean Julia takes dope? While you're visiting here, make some excuse to see her forearm. You can manage it, Hilda. You'll notice that the arm's almost covered with tiny punctures. Morphine. It's incredible. A dope fiend. Well, that would be a nice thing to get around, wouldn't it? We'll have to keep this hushed up, Edmund. Naturally. But I wanted someone else to know. I, uh, I feel better somehow. You must admit that Bickley had done a very neat job up to now. By the time the brother and sister left, they were ready to swear that Julia was a drug addict. As he saw them to their car, Bickley was rubbing his hands in cheerful anticipation of the next step in the murder. He called it part three, the overdose. A few mornings later, Julia rose from breakfast with the worst headache ever. Bickley's face was almost comic in his effort to conceal his delight. This was the time. This was the day Julia would die. He locked up the morphine carefully, then went out on his morning calls. At noon, he returned home secretly to find Julia still suffering horribly. Good. He went to the surgery, unlocked the medicine cabinet, counted the grains of morphine into his hand. One, two, three, four... Five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen. Fifteen grains. Half would have been enough. Hurry, please, Edmund. Yes, hurry. dear. Yes, dear. With his gloved hands, he filled the syringe, surprised at the steadiness of his fingers. At the last moment, he had another flash of genius. Uh, will you hold this syringe a moment, Julia? Thank you. Oh, the clever devil. Her fingerprints on the cylinder. And then, in all fairness, we must say it, 
Brickley gave his wife one last chance. I'll take that syringe now. Julia, for some time past, I've wanted to ask you something. Will you reconsider your decision about divorcing me? No, Edmund, I will not. I'm not a child, Julia. I know my own mind. I'm in love with Madeline Cranmer. I've known it for months. And nothing would persuade me to divorce you for her. The girl's no good, Edmund. No good at all. That's absolutely final? Absolutely. Hold out your arm, Julia. Oh, thank you, Edmund. Go upstairs, Julia. Go up and lie down. Now, let's see, says Bickley. Julia will be dead in 20 minutes. No one knows you came home. Leave the house, go on your rounds, be seen on the street and establish that you were not here when the tragedy took place. Be seen, Dr. Bickley. She'll be dead in 20 minutes. Be seen in the village. Afternoon, Dr. Bickley. Good afternoon, Mrs. Wright. Dr. Bickley. Ah, Mrs. Templer. Lovely afternoon. Lovely. Good afternoon, Doctor. Angie, how's your leg? Oh, perfect. Good. Afternoon, Mrs. Cheevy. Uh, Mrs. Harford. Lovely day, isn't it? At the precise moment that Julia left this world, Dr. Bickley was at the other end of the village, sounding old Mr. Tracy's heart. He wished Mr. Tracy's heart didn't sound so much like a clock ticking. It made him nervous. Twenty minutes from 12.30. That's ten minutes of one. She's dying. She's dying right now. Julia's dying. His heart is beating. Living. Beating. And hers is stopping. Dying. Stopping. What's wrong, Doctor? Is the old ticker on the blink, huh? Oh, no, no. No, Mr. Tracy. It's fine. You, you'll live, I think. Bickley didn't go home. Better let his maid make the discovery. What to do in the meantime? What about going up to the hall to see Madeline? When he arrived, he found another guest barring the doorway. It was Denny Bourne. I don't understand this, Danny. Where is Madeline? Isn't she here? Well, she isn't feeling well, that's all. She's up in her room, lying down. Well, go up and see her. I don't think you should. As a matter of fact, old boy, I think you'd better not come up here at all from now on. Really? And why not? Well, it's only decent, you know. After all, with Madeline and I just becoming engaged. Engaged? You and Madeline? Engaged? Well, then she didn't tell you. Oh, she promised she would. I don't believe it. Why, you young fool? Now, let's not. After all, get out of my way. Now, see here, Bickley. Get out of my way. Madeline. Edmund, you shouldn't have tried to see me. Madeline, look here. This is all nonsense, of course. No, Edmund, it isn't. I've thought it all out. We couldn't go on. You don't love Denny Bourne? You couldn't. Edmund. Listen to me. This is what you're going to do. Edmund, my shoulder. You're hurting Listen, me. Listen, you're going downstairs this minute and break this thing off. Tomorrow I'm going to London to buy a special license. You come with me. We'll be married. In three days, we'll be married. Let me go. Are you mad, Edmund? You have a wife. A wife. My wife is dead. Dead? 
Shut up. Daddy. Shut up, do you hear? Daddy. Dr. Bickley. Dr. Bickley. Vera, Miss Cranmer's hysterical. Get me some cold water. Yes, sir, but, but the telephone, sir. You wanted at once. Mrs. Bickley, sir, she's... Oh, it's very bad news, sir. I'll take the call. Oh, Dr. Bickley, what have you done? Have you put a noose around your neck, Doctor? You were not supposed to know your wife was dead. You hadn't been home. Are those nights and nights of wonderful visions to be wasted? Thrown away by one careless word? Dr. Bickley, oh, how could you? have the first episode of Malice Aforethought. We'd like to leave you with one more fact which makes us feel that this series is destined for a really outstanding success. That is, the popular appeal of the psychological mystery. The box office success of his psychological mystery films. Here are some of them. Rebecca, Spellbound, 39 Steps, Suspicion, Foreign Correspondent, The Lady Vanishes, all names known throughout the country to millions of movie-going Americans. The consistent success of the Hitchcock films is not accidental. It is based on two things. One, Hitchcock's creative genius as a director and interpreter. Two, and this we believe is important to you, the obvious trend of public interest today in the psychological mystery. Well, I'm terribly sorry we're not able to finish the story this week. As Bickley might say, telling a murder story is a serious business, and it takes a little time. Please bear with us and just wait until next week, and let's see what happened to old Bickley. You think he'll get away with it? I wonder. This is the Blue Network of the American Broadcasting Company. A bit of trivia for you. Alfred Hitchcock actually directed the pilot episode of the popular radio series Suspense. I thought I would just throw that out there. Now, our next series is the crime drama Nightbeat. And it first aired on February 6, 1950 and ended its run on September 25th, 1952. It was produced and directed by Warren Lewis, and it starred actor Frank Lovejoy as investigative reporter Randy Stone of the Chicago Star newspaper. As I stated on the season premiere, I wanted to incorporate a variety of shows that may not fall within the genre of terror or suspense, if you will, but did have certain episodes that could be considered macabre and maybe even a bit scary. The episode today, The Black Cat, is an unusual and an eerie one, and I think you'll enjoy it. And this first aired on November 3rd, 1950. So, you know the drill. You may not want to turn on the lights, but do it anyway. 
and sit back and let's listen to the black cat Randy Stone. I cover the night beat for the Chicago Star. Stories start in many different ways. This one began with a Halloween killing and ended with a black cat's sweet revenge. Night Beat, starring Frank Lovejoy as Randy Stone. Yes, Halloween had come and gone, but tonight was still a good night for any leftover spooks, witches, or black cats as the hallowed eve itself. The rain came down like a million little hammers as I slushed down the street. It was a tough night to be out, but I had to have a story for tomorrow morning's paper, and the public isn't interested if you get your feet wet doing it. Tonight I was digging in the garbage of Chicago for a yard. The Madison District. Wooden houses had leaned crazily to one side. Apartment houses put together with spit and orange crates. Great spot for a cynic. I was on the corner of Martin Street. Two or three shadowy figures stood staring at a big, ugly black cat on the street. It walked around in circles like some demented thing, its yellow eyes catching the light from the street lamp above. An old man was trying to coax it away. Have to come home with me. I got milk for you. Honest, I have, and a warm fire. You, you like to be warm, don't you? Well, that cat's gone crazy all the time. I wouldn't go near it if I were you. And she's been acting like that since she took Nick Corby's body away almost an hour ago. Won't let anyone near it. Well, they shouldn't have done it. Nick won't like Tilly standing out here in the rain. I won't mind too much, Mike. Him being dead. Come on, Pop. I'll take you home. The cat'll come in after a while. They killed him, and Tilly knows who done it. Ain't you going to tell me who done it, Tilly? What's with that old guy? A little off. Harmless, though. What about this Corby? I went out for a walk with a cat. Somebody heisted him, took his dough, and left a bullet hole in his head. Good exchange. Cops get anything at all? Nah, I didn't bother much. Asked a few questions and shoveled him into the meat wagon. I call her and she won't come. Well, well, well. Well, I guess I'll be moving on. Yeah, me too. Hey, you want to know something? Yeah, always. This will give you a laugh. You look just like him. Like who? You look just like Nick Corby. Before or after the bullet? So I plugged up the hole in my head and started walking away. Nothing here for me. Another Madison Street special. Guy robbed and killed. He'll stay dead, and the man with the gun will go on living. I'd gone five or six yards when I heard someone calling Oh, what is it, Pop? Tilly, Tilly, she's following you. There she is. You, you see her? Well, yeah, so she is. <laughs> Tilly, you scrawny thing. Oh. Hey, hey, this ugly old doll's going for me. Oh, she likes you. What's the matter, Tilly? Things are getting tough. Hey, will you pick her up and take her to my place? All right, Pop. All right, where do you live? Right here, the Martin apartment. Okay. Up you come, you black banshee. Oh, the feet steps going down. Here, in the basement. I'm the janitor here. Come in and warm up a bit. 
No, no, thank you. No, thank you. Here's your cat. I've got to get moving. Tilly uh, don't want you to go. <laughs> you hadn't ought to. She don't want you to. You tell her I'm practically engaged to someone else. <laughs> so long. I'd like to have accepted the old man's invitation to stay in for a short talk with him and the cat, but there didn't seem to be any room for the three of us. So I walked back upstairs, flagged the cab, and sank down on the seat. But before the driver, something jumped at me and landed in my lap. It was the cat. Uh, driver, just a minute. Now, what is it? i got to take this cat back. I'll be out in a few minutes. Hello, mister. I'm losing fares. On a night like this, everyone wants a cat. I ain't waiting. Nice boy. Come on, Billy. Mike, here, come take the cat. Oh, she went after you, and I couldn't stop her. She likes you. And when she likes a man, she don't let go of him. That's the way it was with Nick. That's no use. You can't get away from her. Maybe she thinks you're Nick. Oh, you look a lot like him, a lot. I'll show her my birth certificate sometime. Mike. Uh Mike, what are you doing with that gun? Oh, cleaning it. You got to clean them all the time. They don't work. As a soldier, and I ought to know, you got to clean them and clean them. Look, look, Mike, if the cat won't stay with you, why don't you take it back to Nick Corby's wife? I wouldn't do that. Mrs. Corby's afraid of the cat. She even tried to kill her once, but Tilly was too smart. <laughs> Mrs. Corby tried to kill Nick, too. How do you know? Nick told me. He was my friend. He played checkers with me, and you know what? He didn't call me Crazy Mike like the rest of them. He'd give me his gun to keep for him after that time Mrs. Corby shot at him. Is that the one you're cleaning now? No. His is hid. Mm-hmm. Uh, where does Mrs. Corby live? Oh, right here in this building. Did you know? Number 18. Well, maybe I'll go up and have a talk with you. You lock Tilly in the other room. I'll go up and see her. You ain't gonna tell her, are you? Tell her what? That I'm gonna kill her. <laughs> Well, Mike wasn't going to do any killing with that gun. I hadn't liked the vacant look in his eyes and the tight lines around his mouth, so while we'd been talking, I'd slipped the magazine into my pocket. But it still left him pretty dangerous. So I thought I'd better go up and have a talk with Mrs. Corby. Who's there? Mr. Stone. Oh, come in. I'm so glad you came. Sit down. Thank you. Say, you don't look like a policeman. I'm not. I'm a reporter. Did the police send you? Oh, not exactly. Oh, I might have known. What's another killing to them when it happens on Madison? Who am I to ask for protection? Who am I to be worried about a crazy man saying he's going to kill me? Or maybe I can help. Can you bring back my husband? Can you bring him back so that he'll pay the rent every month and see that I have something to eat and a dress to wear? Can you bring back the feeling I had of belonging to someone? That's the way it was till the cat came. That's who killed him. The cat? Yes. He said he was going out tonight. I told him. Now, I told him, go, go, Nick. Now, don't you go or... Or what? Nothing. She couldn't stand seeing us happy. He put his arms around me. That cat would come whining and scratching at me. Hating me with everything in her. Oh, look, Mrs. Corby, you're upset now. Always talking and whispering to each other. Till I, I go crazy mad. Nick's... Stroking her and the cat purring and mocking me. I tried to poison her. I tried to shoot her. But I couldn't. She, she's too clever. Well, the police will get at it, Mrs. Corby, in a few days. The whole thing will blow over. I told them who did it. They said they'd look into it, but they won't till it's too late. 
That's the way the cops work around here. I'm kind of confused, lady. Just, just who is it you're talking about? Mike. Mike? Did he kill your husband? Why? Because he's crazy, that's why. Talking soft and low one minute and the next a raving maniac. He'll kill me, too, if the police don't stop him. What's that? You tell me the cat at the window. Get away from there! You sneaking, lying thing! I'll, I'll kill you! I will! You hear? Take hold of yourself, lady. Take hold of yourself. It's only a cat. A cat? It's a she-devil. A steaming, rotten she-devil. You get away, or I'll throw She picked up the empty bottle and threw it at the window, and the cat disappeared. For a few minutes, I thought Mrs. Corby had gone out of her mind. I finally quieted her down. She wouldn't let me leave her at first. But when I told her I was just going to bring the police back, she locked herself in the room and told me to hurry. When I got out into the hallway, old Mike was standing by, an empty grin on his face. Hmm. Carrying on, wasn't she? What were you doing up here? Just listening. I like to hear people yell. Well, you come on downstairs. I want to talk to you. I made some tea for us. I like tea. Mm -hmm. How did Tilly get out? I opened the door and out she came. <laughs> did you want her to scare Mrs. Corby? Yeah. Worked good, didn't it? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Mike, Mike, tell me, did you like scaring people or is it just Mrs. Corby? Uh, here's your tea. I like tea. Thanks, Mrs. Mike. Corby don't like old Mike. She thinks I'm crazy. You... You think I'd be here talking about important things if I thought you were? Yeah, we got important things to talk about. Mike, why do you want to kill Mrs. Corby? Mm, she's a bad woman. Always running around that Mr. Baydell. You know, the one that plays the music. And Nick didn't like that? No, Nick didn't like the music man. He hit him once. Made him bleed all over. Oh, when was this? Day before yesterday. They was fighting about Nick's wife. And Mr. Baydell said, I'll kill you for this. Do you think he did? On a dark corner, in the rain, when nobody was watching, they'd done it to him. I got to kill her for that. And him, too. I'll tell you what, Mike. I'll go down and get the police here, and they'll look after it. You know what? I lost part of my gun, and I can't use it. Well, you won't need it. I'm going for the cops. Oh, it takes them too long. I'll do it with Nick's gun. I got it hid for him. Where is it? I hid it good. It's under my bed in this box. Now, let me take a look at it. Uh, oh, it ain't here. It's, it's gone. You are listening to Night Beat, starring Frank Lovejoy as Randy Stone. What's big? Well, the Grand Canyon is tremendous. Mount Everest is gigantic. And The Big Show is colossal. The Big Show, an hour and a half of the very best in comedy, music, and drama. Tallulah Bankhead is mistress of ceremonies, and your stars for this Sunday's premiere include Jimmy Durante, Fred Allen, Ethel Merman, Meredith Wilson, Frankie Lane, and many, many more. The Big Show will be heard for an hour and a half every Sunday on NBC, starting this Sunday. Now back to Nightbeat and Randy Stone. The old man's face went white when he couldn't find Nick's gun, and I could see a crazy rage coming to a boil. I don't mind telling you that I was scared. And then suddenly there was an explosion that seemed to come from the basement window. Somebody was shooting at us. I pulled Mike down to the floor. 
For a minute, I thought Mike had been hit, but he was only dazed and maybe scared. Uh, 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 they want to get me before I get them. Who, Mike? Who? She don't like me, and Mr. Baydell don't like me. Where does he live? Next door, in the room and house. Well, I'm going to talk to him. Don't leave this room and you'll be all right, understand me? Well, where's Tilly? I, I ain't seen Tilly. The cat will be all right. You just stay here. On the third floor of the rooming house, I heard accordion music coming from behind one of the closed doors. I knocked on it. Come in. I pushed the door open. I stood looking at a guy in his middle 40s wrestling with an old accordion. One look and I was sure he wasn't the man of distinction. There was a cloudy glass of muscatel sitting on a dirty table at his side. His tongue was a little thick when he spoke. A music lover, no doubt. I see that your clothes are soaking wet. Just come in out of the rain, maybe, a few minutes ago. Do I detect the tone of authority in your voice? Let me guess. Policeman? No. I'm greatly relieved. They frown so on musicians who slid from concert hall to bar room, from a Steinway to an accordion. Who are you? I'm Randy Stone, Chicago star. Ah, yes, the star. Your paper was kind to me in, uh, in happier days. I dare say you want an interview, uh, one of those what's become of stories. Oh, I'm sorry I can't oblige. I'm composing at the moment. Look, Mr. Paydell, I have a few questions I'd like answered. Ah, but haven't we all? Question number one. Have you in the past 15 minutes fired a revolver? That simple? No. Mind if I look around? Not at all. Hmm. Now, what's the use? You could have ditched the gun. Perhaps you'd like to hear my newest work. I'm more interested in Nick Corby at the moment. Ah, lucky fellow. To be shot down, destroyed without a moment's warning. No remorse. A shot, and one less specimen of misery in the world. You rather think I did it, don't you, Mr. Stone? From what I'm given to understand, you're a likely candidate. Poor demented Mike has been talking to you. Do you believe it? I suppose you were composing when he was shot. I've been rehearsing the answer to that question all evening. I know it so well, I could set it to music. Well, I'll take it straight. I was with Mrs. Corby when the news came in. In fact, I opened the door for the policeman. Mrs. Corby will swear to that, I suppose. Indeed, she will. <laughs> I in person, Mrs. Corby. Now, Mr. Stone, before you go, perhaps you'd be interested in buying an etude I've recently finished. For one dollar... Uh, I'll sell it to the cops. You'll be seeing them pretty soon. Will you please send one that can play oboe? I've written a variation in A minor for accordion and oboe that goes like this. I don't know. I seem to have a knack of getting mixed up with offbeat characters. They fascinate me like a stage door fascinates some Johnnies. And I get to know what makes a guy tick, even if it means ducking a couple of bullets. There wasn't much doubt in my mind that either old Mike or Mr. Baydell had helped Corby out of this world. And even though they were interesting characters, they were both dangerous, and it kind of burned me up that the cops hadn't done anything about them. Mrs. Corby wanted protection, and she was entitled to it. So I hopped into a cab and went down to headquarters. Sergeant Kelly was playing four-handed canasta all by himself. Hi. How about some canasta? How about a little murder? On a night like this? Now, this is an old one. Three hours ago, Nick Corby. Oh, him. Boy's just finished on him. You got the report? Not a written one, but I know all the stuff. Shot through the temple, very close range. He was robbed. Bad spot, that Martin Avenue. What kind of gun was used? Forty-five. Mm -hmm. Should have seen that neat, round little hole in his head. Looked like a bomb crater. Mrs. Corby feels her life is in danger and asks for protection. How come she didn't get it? Swanson told me about her. 
She's nuts. Talked about a cat killing her. Then some harmless old guy she wanted pulled. Some old droller. She's nuts. Well, she asked for something she's entitled to. And that harmless old man, somebody took a couple of shots at him. Why didn't somebody tell her? Well, I'm telling you now. You're going to send some boys down right away? You guys are going to get a blasting from my paper if you don't. What are you all worked up about? A guy was killed, that's all, and a couple of nuts with guns are on the loose, that's all. Our boys questioned them and couldn't see no reason for doing more than they did. Now, be reasonable, Stone. Are you going to get someone down there, or do I start writing? Uh, I'll do what I can. Good. And Randy? Yeah. If, uh, you're going to start writing, be sure you spell my name with two L's. When I got back to Mike's place in the basement, he was gone. While waiting for him, I rummaged around a bit just to keep busy and see what I could find. I didn't even hear the door open, but then... Uh-oh. You won't find it. Oh, uh... Hello, Mike. What won't I find? What you're looking for? Oh, Mike knows. What do you know? He knows who killed Nick. He knows for sure now. Who was it? Mr. Bedell. He done it. How do you know it was him? I found a gun in his room. Nick's gun with three bullets missing. One for Nick and two for me. That's how I know. Let me see it, Mike. I got it hit good this time. That's fine. That's fine. We'll give it to the police when they come, won't we? No. Nick wants me to do it myself. He wouldn't show me the gun or tell me where he'd hidden it. And the look on his face told me that whatever was left of his brain was concentrating on what he was going to do. I ran next door and back upstairs to warn the musician. He was gone. Landlady told me, try the bar on the corner. The storm had got a new lease on life, and I was glad to close the door of that bar behind me. The place was empty, but for the bartender and my friend with the accordion. Live one. What'll it be? A little conversation with Shostakovich over there. Tell the gentleman I have nothing to discuss with him. He is not a patron of the arts. You heard him. Mr. Baydell, you've got to get out of here. Then tell the man what my terms are for conversation. You've got to buy him a drink. Oh, he's had enough. Well, a small subsidy of 50 cents may buy you a piece of posterity through my composition. Yeah. Better buy him a drink, mister. He gets stubborn. All right, all right, then. Make it quick. Thank you. I will now dedicate to you... Look, Mr. Bidell, any minute now, that door may open and you... How dare you interrupt me in the middle of a presentation? Well... You, Marimma, you'll get no place. I'm very sorry. Go ahead. Bartender, keep your eye on that door. The piece I've selected for you is a bit of American minstrelsy. Two lovers stood on the corner. Above them, the street lamp shone. A shock rang out through the dismal nights, and the dead man lay alone. Oh, that's just great. Now listen to me. Mike found the gun in your room, the one that was used to kill Corby with. Uh, that's why they call him Crazy Mike. His retarded mentality makes his hallucinations so very powerful. And all with no aid from Bacchus, the god of wine. But don't sell a guy like that short. They kill a lot quicker than the ordinary person. Ah, listen to that storm. A fine night for death. A fine night for sweet oblivion. Did he show you the gun? No, but I know he's got it. And he found it in my room? Yes. Sweet, faded traitress. 
she put it there. What do you mean? Nothing. Closing up, boys. All right, if you're smart, you'll come with me to police headquarters. It'll go a lot easier with you if you don't wait to be picked up. No, I may be better served this way. Mike is looking for me? Yeah. Then I shall walk home slowly from the same corner under the same streetlight. Complexities may become peace and the struggle ended. Yes, I, I like it this way. Look, mister, you're a sick man, a very sick man. On the contrary, I can't remember when I felt better. Good night, sir. Ten more minutes when I close shop. I'll stay till then. Good night again, Mr. Stone. The guy was mad. Didn't I say something about Halloween? Well, I had the two spooks, Crazy Mike and Mr. Baydell. I had the black cat, too. All I needed for the repeat performance was a witch and a broomstick. I got back to Mike's basement rooms, thinking I'd stay with him till the boys from headquarters got there. Mike! Mike ain't here. Who are you? Randy Stone, Chicago Star. Ah, Johnny told me you'd be around. Well, I'm glad you got here. Did you take Mike in? I couldn't find him. I'm waiting here for you to show up. He's got a gun. He's planning to use it. Uh, Kelly's upstairs talking to Mrs. Corby now. I want you guys better get down to the corner bar and keep your eye on the accordion player named Baydell. Yeah, who's he? That's the guy Mike is going to kill. I can't leave here. Maybe you better tell Kelly to go after Baydell and you stay with Miss Corby. <laughs> He'll be plenty happy to get out of there. She's driving him nuts about that black cat. Have you seen the cat? No. I heard him yelling outside and went out and looked around, but she was gone. <laughs> Kelly let me into Mrs. Corby's room. He was looking pleased with himself. Hello, Stone. Oh, you. Well, we're getting places on this thing, aren't we, Mrs. Corby? Well. I convinced her to give me some of the real facts. Good night. And it comes out that she don't think crazy Mike done it. Do you, Mrs. Corby? I, I... I Mr. Baydell? How do you know? Mike found a gun in his room. Three bullets fired. Where's the gun? Where's the gun? Mike's got it. He's looking for Baydell to give him the rest of the bullets in the head. That's not so good. We got a man at Baydell's room waiting for him to come home. He's at the bar on the corner. I'll go get him. You stay here with Mrs. Corby. All right. Well, Eddie, it looks like your worries are all over. Now, you promised to take the cat, too. There we go again with the cat. Okay, we'll take her. I'll be back in a few minutes. There. Keep the door locked, John. Okay. You didn't tell me about your boyfriend before, Mrs. Corby. I tried to shield him. I, I knew they wouldn't do much to old Mike. Why did he kill him? Nick made fun of him. And, uh, Mr. Baydell wanted me for himself. He told me he was with you when the police came to tell you about the shooting. He'd come in about two minutes before they did and made me say it. He came up the fire escape through this window. Well, it'll be over in a few minutes. Well, if they take the cat away, if they don't, she... Who's that? You're doomed, lover. Open up. Don't get him again. I've got to. I've got to hold him for the police. Your persistence would have done you well in the musical field, young man. You're not doing so bad yourself. I saw a rather heavy-set gentleman searching for me. You sent him, no doubt? No doubt, and he'll be back. And Mike, where is he? He disappointed me keenly. I waited and waited for him on the corner. Uh, by the way, has my true love told you all? Yeah. Did the sweet, toned deaf person tell you that she was insanely jealous of her husband's relations with a black cat? Don't believe it, Mr. Stone. How come, Vedel? Fifteen minutes ago, you were ready to let Mike get you. Now you're singing a different tune. Mike disappointed me. I would gladly have paid on the street corner. But in a stinking jail? No, I'd rather not. Oh, don't listen to him. He's crazy. You're wasting your time. 
Did the lady tell you that she came in through the fire escape three or four minutes after the shot was heard? Well, let it go. I'm not the judge of the jury. Oh, very well. Then let us sit here and just listen to the story. That's frightening. It's only thunder. The lights. The lights are out! Now, cut the hysteria. It's only a power failure. I'll be on in a few minutes. Oh, quiet, please. The beauty of darkness was never more necessary than now. What's that? Probably the police. Who is it? Just Mike. Oh, the cat. Take it away, Mike. Mike, please, take it away. The lady's rival. Hi, Mike. Come on, old timer. Give me that gun. Here we are. Don't move. None of you. Mike, the police are downstairs. They've come to straighten everything out. It didn't call me crazy. Uh, poor old Mike, he can't see in the dark room, but Tilly can. <laughs> Thank you, Tilly, Tilly. Tilly, you show me where he is so I can shoot him. Mike, Mike, I'm afraid of her. If she touches me, I'll follow you, Mrs. Corby. Mike, I'm coming to that window, and you'll give me that gun. I got a bullet for you, too, if I have to. Here we are. Tilly, he was there with Nick when it happened. You can see him. He just walked over to him, Tilly, and I'll see your eyes in the dark. Tilly, and I know where to shoot. She's, she's coming down. I watched with a horrible fascination as the cat landed on the floor. She looked around the room carefully, her yellow eyes flashing with hate. Don't let her touch me. Don't. I can't stand it. Easy, Mrs. Corby. You'll excite Mike. She's going to spring at me. I can't stand it. Mike, take her away. I did it. I killed him. Isn't that what you want to know? <laughs> now take her away. Take her away. <laughs> Mike fired straight at Mrs. Corby, but somehow his shot went wild. And then it was all over. Kelly'd been working his way up the fire escape, and he got Mike from behind. <laughs> okay, okay, old timer. Let me have the gun. Yeah. We evened up for him, didn't we, Tilly? We evened up for Nick. Come on, Pop. I'm coming. Just a minute now. You listen. Yeah. Tilly's happy now. <laughs> She's happy now. <laughs> we got her all right. She made me do it. That cat. She hated me and she made me kill him. <laughs> The boys took over and there was nothing left for me to do. Mrs. Corby turned out to be the missing witch in my Halloween ball. She'd taken the shots at Mike and then planted the gun in old Baydell's room. I walked the broken-down musician home. I felt I owed him an apology. I'm sorry about tonight. Everybody makes mistakes, and I picked tonight to make the one of mine. I made a bigger mistake than you did, Mr. Stone. And what was that? When Mike was at the window, I should have shouted, Here I am. But he would have killed you. Yes. Good night, Mr. Stone. Good night, sir. Yeah, I've got a talent for getting mixed up with weird characters. Three out of the four were wacky, off their rockers. Old Mike, Mrs. Corby, Baydell, the accordion player. And the fourth character, of course, is me. And you know what? I'm not so sure about him either. No. Am I, Tilly girl? I would have sworn that cat said something. Copy, boy. Copy.
Beat, starring Frank Lovejoy, is produced and edited and directed by Warren Lewis. Tonight's script was written by Lou Russoff with music by Frank Worth. The part of Mrs. Corby was played by Lorene Tuttle. Mike was Will Gear. Others in tonight's cast were June Foray, Tudor Owen, Ken Christie, Lamont Johnson, and Lou Krugman. Frank Lovejoy will soon be seen in the Warner Brothers adventure drama Breakthrough. Three chimes mean good times on NBC. Here is a special listening note for all of you who enjoy following along step-by-step with Randy Stone as he covers the night beat. Starting next Friday, November 10th, night beat will be heard exactly one half hour earlier over most of these stations. Next week, in this time period, you'll hear the premiere of a new series starring Monty Woolley as the Magnificent Montague. Remember, next Friday, night beat will be heard one half hour earlier. Consult your local papers for the exact time. Salula Bankhead as FEMC brings you the big show Sunday on NBC. Well, that's our show for this evening. I want to thank you all for listening. And remember, you can find me on Facebook at facebook.com slash terror 1970 or you can find me on Instagram at Radio Show Nerd or on Twitter at Radio Show Nerd 1 and as I stated earlier in the episode you can always drop me a line or a request or just to say hi at my email address Radio Show Nerd at gmail.com again this is your host Keith aka the radio show nerd signing off